Oh, uh, today someone had offered a little statue of Venerable Sivali, one of the great disciples of the Buddha. And he was the foremost monk of those who would get lots of offerings. I think this is why it's quite popular to have a statue of Venerable Sivali. He had such great pavami that uh, he sometimes would get alms food in locations where even the Buddha himself found it difficult to get any alms. So he's a kind of uh, a symbol for Dana Pavami, which then comes back as you know, all kinds of offerings. And there's an amazing story about his birth in the Udana. Udana is one of the small collections in the Tipitaka. And uh, it's all the instances when the Buddha would make an Udana. And Udana means the kind of solemn declaration or inspired utterance. So it's some extraordinary story happening. And the Buddha in the end commenting with a little verse. The birth of Venerable Sivali was for sure very extraordinary. Uh, his mother was uh, Supervasa the Kolian. The Kolian were a uh, tribe living next to the Sakyans. Now, the father of the Buddha was a Sakyan. The mother of the Buddha was a Kolian princess. So there and quite close and both were considered the highest caste those time in India, the Katiyas, and they would intermarry. There's also a little connection here to Damagiri because we're in the suburb of Kolo. <laughs> Curiously, Kolo in Pali is actually the name for a particular tree and also a fruit. In China, it's known as the Chinese Red Date. and It's quite it's considered to be very healthy. I think one uh, way of translating it as English is uh, jujube for the fruit. Although in Sri Lanka, jujube I think just means any sweet or something. Uh, so, cola uh, or the nominative ending colo is a little tree. We have one of those next to the little entrance there, the little entry gate. There's a colo tree, and uh, the colians were actually originally named after that very tree. So in any case, Supervasa, one of the princesses, aristocracy in this Nicolian uh, tribe, happened to fall pregnant with uh, Sivali. It was a very unusual pregnancy because uh, it lasted for seven years. You may be aware that normally it goes something around 10 months. In the case of the mother of the bodhisattvas, the Buddha in his last life, the mother is always exactly 10 months pregnancy. But usually it varies, but it normally never varies to over a year and certainly not seven years. And after a pregnancy of seven years, she went into labor and the labor continued for seven days. I mean, as a man, I have never been through the experience of labor, at least not in this life. But some mothers here can probably imagine how she was feeling after 
seven days of continuous labor and being unable to deliver the child. Basically, she was at the end of her wits, totally overwhelmed by pain and suffering and desperate. And it's said that only three contemplations would keep her going in this situation of total despair. What were the three contemplations? And number one, indeed, the Blessed One is a fully awakened Buddha, that he is teaching the Dhamma for abandoning that kind of pain. Second, indeed, the Sangha is well practiced because they practice for the complete abandonment of that kind of pain and suffering as I experience now. And thirdly, indeed, this Nibbana is truly happiness where this kind of pain cannot exist and can never arise again. So it's quite fascinating. You can already see that she is also a great disciple. She was declared uh, the foremost of the female disciples in terms of those who are offering uh, the refined foods, panita, very refined and beautiful things. And she was the foremost in offering that to the Sangha. But you can already see her wisdom. It's quite natural that we contemplate Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha if we are in a dire straits and if we are overwhelmed by pain and suffering. But she was slightly changing that contemplation and she made it relevant for her situation. If you just recite the qualities of the Buddha, we may sometimes lose. What does it actually have to do with me? It's not just that the Buddha attained freedom from suffering for himself, but he actually taught it to everyone. And if you follow his teaching, we all can reach the absolute end of all pain and suffering. And this is what she contemplated. The the Buddha is truly the supremely awakened one because he teaches us. He found the escape and then he's teaching us how we can get out of the pain I experience. Not something in the abstract, not dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-U, just as a concept, as an idea, as a notion. But Dukkha is something I feel in my own heart and which overwhelms me and which I now realize that this is what the Buddha is talking about and this is what he is teaching for me to actually be able to get out of that. And the same with the Sangha. Not just an affectionate worship for those who are wearing robes, but understanding that they are actually on the path to abandon all dukkha. And thirdly, the contemplation that Nibbana, although if you haven't experienced it yet, it may be a little bit difficult to get our head around it. What does it actually mean, Nibbana? But she certainly understood it means that there's no pain, and certainly not that pain and suffering which she experiences after seven days of labor and unable to deliver the child. Anyway, at the seventh day, she was at the end of her rope. So she asked her husband, can you please go to the Buddha 
and pay respect in my name and inquire about his happiness and welfare and please explain to him that this has happened to me, pregnant for seven years, in labor for seven days, and I barely can keep on just contemplating Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha as the ones who have abandoned that kind of pain. And of course, now the husband trying to help his desperate wife, being quite desperate himself, and maybe losing his wife and losing the child he had so many hopes for. And he goes to the Buddha and tells the whole story. And then the Buddha is just saying, okay, may Supervasa be happy and healthy and may she deliver a healthy child. And when the husband goes back, she has already delivered. The very moment when the Buddha was giving her a blessing, uh, that moment she finally succeeded in delivering the child. And when the husband came back, which was already quite okay again, and the husband was very happy that he had his child and he had his uh, wife preserved from the great danger of dying there in childbirth. And immediately she had another request for the husband. Now being so happy that she had succeeded in overcoming that and having so much gratitude and inspiration that the little blessing of the Buddha was sufficient to finally get her out of that pain. And she asked him to invite the Sangha for seven days. So both the Buddha and the whole Sangha, and she wants to offer for a series of a whole week for seven days to the whole Sangha with the Buddha at its head, the meal. So the husband goes again to the Buddha, explains the whole story. And there's only one problem. The Buddha has already agreed on going to the dana next day to another person. So this other guy is a supporter of Venerable Mahamogalana. So the Buddha asked Venerable Mahamogalana, can you not go to your supporter and tell the whole story? And I mean, this is something really extraordinary and special. When, when does one ever hear about a pregnancy going for seven years and then surviving and succeeding in childbirth after seven days of labor and now she wants to give a series of seven days dana can you not just give her the slot tomorrow and you do your dana after one week? So when Mahamogalana goes to that gentleman, uh, he explains the request of Supervasa and the Buddha. And the gentleman is asking Venerable Mahamogalana if he can vouch for three things, he will be willing to do that. Please vouch, first of all, that after seven days I'm still alive. Secondly, please vouch for me that after seven days I still have enough wealth that I can actually do the dana. And thirdly, please vouch for me that after seven days I still have enough faith and confidence in the Sangha that I still do the dana. So it's interesting this. So he had, when Mokalana is known for all his psychic powers, and he seems to have faith, and if Venerable Mahamogalana now says he'll be okay, then he's willing to do it. Venerable Mahamogalana agrees only on the first two. He says, okay, I vouch for you for life and wealth, but you got to look after your faith yourself. And then the gentleman agrees, and just on these two conditions. 
but he still has life and enough money to pay for the dana and to do it. And this is also a fascinating little thing you know, that when a Ma Mogalana wouldn't just uh, lightheartedly do that, but to really go in there and to say, I vouch for that. I think he had already assurance that the Buddha wouldn't request that if there's any doubt that something could happen to that person and he misses out on that great good karma. And then maybe even based on his own psychic powers, he could also predict. But fascinatingly, it may not be possible to predict that people still have the faith. Because that is something which just doesn't depend only on our past karma, but it also depends now on us to maintain it. And it shows you know, that um, the karma is not something deterministic. It's not fatalism. It's not absolutely sure. And it's not just my fate, whether I have faith or not. It's something I have to actively develop. I cannot just say, you know, it's my karma that I'm not generous. <laughs> That's not an excuse. No, I have to develop generosity. I have to develop faith. It's my karma. I just don't have good meditation. Uh, hang on, that doesn't work like that. We have to develop meditation, put in effort. In any case, so the uh, gentleman is happy, he is willing to do it a week later. And so Supervasa can go for this whole series of seven days, the Buddha and the whole Sangha coming to our house. You can see she is a kind of princess aristocracy, else you can't do that. You need considerable wealth and the servants to be able to pull that off. So next day the Buddha comes and she's a very happy mother now. The day before she was at the end of her wits, desperate, overwhelmed by pain. But now it was all fine and she had her little child and she's super happy and the whole Sangha and the Buddha is coming to her house and she gets a little child, little Sivali and uh, Although he's a tiny baby, she makes him worshipping, paying respects to the Buddha and to the Sangha. And then Venerable Sadiputta, the chief disciple of the Buddha, known as the field marshal of Dhamma, starts talking to the little boy. So they're having a Dhamma conversation there. And he's asking, how are you doing, child? How are you bearing up? I hope you are fine. And the child answers, what do you think? How am I doing? How am I bearing up? I spent seven years in a cauldron of blood, <laughs> referring to the pregnancy and being confined in, in, in the mother's body. So you can see Sivali is quite special. He could speak the day after his birth. But on the other hand, although he was born only the last day, in a sense he was already seven years old, so it looks like he was able to develop some abilities either during gestation or as a shastana, his outstanding good karma that he could already talk and that he even had a quite unusual and dhamma-like conversation where he recognized that the human body is filled with many impurities and he spent so much time in the human body. However, a supervisor doesn't really hear exactly what they're talking, but she just sees that her child now is having Dhamma conversation with the chief disciple of the Buddha. 
and she's overwhelmed and so blissed out by the joy and happiness and rapture. Can you imagine the proud mother? She has got this the child prodigy. Her child can speak just on the first day after birth and he doesn't speak with anyone. He has a dumber conversation with the chief disciple of the Buddha. So the day before, peak of suffering, and now the peak of happiness and bliss. And this is now what triggers the Buddha. But he is actually even asking Supervasa, I wonder, you're so happy, would you like to have another child just like that? And she says, oh Bhante, I would love to have seven children just like that. <laughs> and then the Buddha speaks Yudana. It's interesting that the Buddha wouldn't make this extraordinary exclamation because he was born after seven years or seven days of labor and then the little miracle that his blessing was sufficient and that wasn't really anything that impressed the Buddha. But what impressed the Buddha is that this mother now went in one day from being absolutely devastated because of the child to being absolutely blissed out and super happy the day after because of their child. And then he speaks the Udana. Asatang sata rupena piyarupena apayang dokhang sukhasa rupena pamatang ativatati. Anyone understand enough, Pali? <laughs> so, what is unpleasant in the disguise of pleasure? And what is not really endearing or dear in the disguise of what is dear? And suffering and masquerading faking as pleasure and happiness. This is what overpowers someone uh, who is heedless. It's quite a profound one, isn't it? It's not what you expect at that occasion. You know, the Buddha quite unimpressed from all these miraculous appearances. You know, he's not now making Udana, it is wonderful, it's amazing that a little child can speak the day after birth, he doesn't say anything like that. That doesn't strike the Buddha. Now, this is a truly amazing thing. She was now absolutely devastated, now going through the peak of suffering. Again, as a man, I can't fully relate to it. Now, they say the closest a man can come to the pain of giving birth is a really bad kidney stone. But... I, I didn't have a kidney stone either so far, so but I imagine it must be very painful. And then seven days in labor, and then there's the absolute peak of suffering. And it's all caused by that child. And without that child, she wouldn't have that you know, outstanding pain and despair. And the very next day, she's now so happy about the same child that she states in public, I would love to have seven children just like that, just like that, implying even that pain to go through that another seven times. 
And then the Buddha and sees the uh, deep significance and that even someone who has so much wisdom and becomes an, a great disciple of the Buddha, like Nesupavasa, one of the, the top female lay disciples, that the, the joy of having a child and the joy that the child is an apology, a miracle child, and the joy you know, that the child now in front of everyone, in front of the Buddha, uh, it's obviously not just the Buddha coming there. You know, the whole town will be there. And she's one of the eminent people in the town, and she's an aristocracy, you know, so the whole court and everyone is there. And in public, you know, her child now is you know, being extolled by Venerable Sariputta, and she's so happy. And she you know, overlooks what the Buddha means nearby Upper Mada there, She's not really heedless in a, in a coarse or primitive sense, but she still gets carried away by the happiness built on the attachment to the child, that she completely forgets that the child is also causing so much suffering. Now this is the Udana the Buddha gives to everyone. It's the same with us. Now, this is an extreme example now, which brings it now, to, to a point. But now, all of us are in that situation now, that we have that upper murder, that negligence, that heedlessness, and that what is ultimately a cause of our suffering can succeed in deceiving us that it's our happiness. If we don't have children, now, for example, our body as long as the body is happy and healthy, and it looks like the body is really something giving us so much pleasure, nice food and enjoyment and dancing and so on. But ultimately, this is just hiding the deeper suffering which is always bound up with the body. But we can't see it, we get carried away by heedlessness. And even when we die and the mind is finally you know, freed from this physical body, we immediately grasp at a new one because of exactly that same thing. And the mind is free of the body and people usually experience it as great happiness. And if you read the reports from people who have gone through a near-death experience, Now they often describe you know, this tremendous lightness and happiness once they were out of the body. But then one becomes seedless again and one gets overwhelmed by the deception that the body is something that gives us happiness. That birth is something that gives us happiness. You know, the, we get overwhelmed by pleasant feeling. We think pleasant feeling is happiness, isn't it? If it feels nice, this is happiness. In a sense, yes, for a while it's happiness, but all pleasant feeling is impermanent. And when the pleasant feeling ends, how does that feel like? That's unpleasant. The end of pleasure is what is called pain. Whenever something that is pleasant ends, and it always ends, it ends in pain. 
So as a teaching for all of us. And we can see you know, that just like Supervasa, we again and again are buying into it. And we go for it because we think this is what leads us to happiness. Asatang satarupena, what is gratifying, what is pleasant. But it's only appearing like that in reality that leads to dukkha. Piyarupena apiyam, what is not really dear to us, what is the cause of our suffering, we perceive as what is dear to us. And uh, dukkhaṁ sakarupena, the dukkhaṁ masquerading as happiness. This is the insight which kind of flips over the whole universe when people realize the Dhamma, what is called uh, uh, Dukkha in the world, the noble ones have understood as Sukha, and what is called Sukha in the world, the noble ones have understood as Dukkha. Suffering and happiness and a kind of flipping around. This is a most uh, extreme description almost you can give of enlightenment. What, what could be more extreme than, than flipping these two things around? Yeah, there's a very good comment. Uh, could it be that we get deceived by suffering to be happiness because of ayoniso manasikada, unwise attention? And uh, that is exactly right. Uh, it is delusion which leads us to attend unwisely. It is lack of knowledge and a lack of training in the noble discipline which leads us to attend unwisely. And if we attend unwisely, not thoroughly, not going to the deeper source, deeper causes, then uh, this delusion gets further reinforced. And of course, immediately it follows, if we use wise attention, thorough attention, and attention which actually investigates deep underlying causes, this is how we can get out of it. If we dig a little bit deeper, we notice this is actually not as much happiness as it appears. This is actually more suffering. Now, this is why you know, monks and nuns you know, give up their household life and give up so many things where people say, you know, why, why no money? Why no sensuality? And it's quite challenging for people. Because most people think you know, without money, without sensuality, you know, how is there any happiness? But if you dig a little bit deeper, if you apply in a wise attention and wise investigation, you find that without money and without sensuality, there's actually more happiness and less suffering. And money is another one. Most people think, oh, money, this is happiness. (laughs) But if money is giving you happiness, then the Buddha would be miserable. He didn't have any money. All these monks, they would all be miserable. They had no money at all. If the only way to get happy would be sensuality, then all the the Buddha and all these monks should be miserable. 
but the people who suffered least, you know, the happiest people I've met, you know, were some monks. Yeah, that is a nice uh, distinction. So, you, what we can do with money, or what money does to us, yeah, yeah, and what money does to us, is digging us deeper into suffering. <laughs> and we are just like supermaster. When you win the lotto, you're so happy. Whereas the wise ones are looking at you and they realize, oh no, she's in trouble. <laughs> More attachment. Any other comments or questions? Anything on the podcast? When you said what ordinary people say is dukkha, the nine ones say is sukha, and then the following statement, is that from the Buddha or from the canon? Yes, for example, in uh, Dayatana Pasana, in Sutanipata, towards the end. I really like it because it shows uh, how, how much more can the universe flip over than changing these two. <laughs> uh, that shows uh, that the experience of Nibbana is some, something dramatic. Okay, we can share merits with all beings. Yeah.
Sangha 